Hello and welcome to episode 60 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm your host, Peter Alegi. Peter Lim is on research leave overseas. For this first show of 2012, it's my pleasure to welcome my Michigan State history colleagues, Gwendolyn Midlow-Hall and Walter Hawthorne to the program. The topic of today's discussion is digital African history, and specifically, Walter and Gwen's Atlantic Slave Data Network, a cutting-edge initiative funded by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Professor Walter Hawthorne is the chair of the Michigan State Department of History and the co-principal investigator and project director of the Atlantic Slave Database Network. He has considerable experience with quantitative analysis of data about slavery from primary sources in Brazil, which was uh, one of the main sources for his uh, newest book um, that was entitled From Africa to Brazil, Culture, Identity, and an Atlantic Slave Trade, 1600 to 1830, uh, published in 2010 by Cambridge University Press. Uh, his previous book uh, was Planting Rice and Harvesting Slaves, Transformations Along the Guinea-Bissau Coast, 1400 to 1900, published in 2003 by Heinemann. Professor Gwendolyn Midlow-Hall uh, taught at Rutgers for many years, from 1971 to 1996. She is uh, on the International Advisory Board uh, of the Harriet Tubman uh, Resource Institute on the African Diaspora at York University in Toronto, Canada. She has won numerous awards and prizes for her research, including from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Um, she won the Distinguished Service Award in 2004 from the Organization of American Historians, has won many, many grants. Uh, she's been a Guggenheim Fellow. If I were to properly uh, describe all of the uh, qualifications uh, of Professor Hall, I'd probably be here for the entire half hour of the podcast. So I'm just going to uh, highlight some of the major research accomplishments that include uh, the book Social Control in Slave Plantation Societies, a comparison of Saint-Domingue and Cuba, uh, published by Johns Hopkins Press in 1971, and then reissued as a paperback by Louisiana State University Press in 96. Uh, the acclaimed book Africans in Colonial Louisiana, the Development of Afro-Creole Culture in the 18th Century, uh, LSU Press, 1992. This book in particular received nine prizes. She has edited uh, another volume uh, and also authored uh, Slavery and African Ethnicities in the America, uh, Americas, excuse me, Restoring the Links, University of North Carolina Press, uh, 2005. Uh, she has worked on other databases, uh, including the database uh, for the study of Afro-Louisiana history and genealogy, which came out in 2000. Uh, there was even a front-page story about this work in the New York Times on uh, July 30, 2000, um, and has been interviewed for numerous television documentaries uh, on PBS, uh, BBC World, and other outlets. Welcome, Gwen. Welcome, welcome, Walter. Uh, why don't we start by describing the project, the Atlantic Slave uh, Data Network, or ASDN. Okay. Well, this is a, pro a new project that's been recently funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities. 
and its purpose is to create a best practices slave database using Cora, which is has been developed and operate and operates through Matrix here at MSU. And Matrix is one of the leading institutes for digital humanities in the country. Uh, the purpose of the of this particular project is to be able to create collaboration among scholars from all over the world as long as they have access to the internet so that we can communicate with each other and we can all uh, enter the data that we find about slaves in documents throughout the Atlantic world. So what kind of data are we talking about? Okay. Well, these, these, this, th these data come from descriptions of, of particular slaves, individual slaves, in, in a great variety of documents. They, they could be sales of slaves, they could be manumissions, they could be descriptions of an entire estate contain, containing slaves, they could be uh, gifts, of, gifts of slaves, rentals of slaves, and each of these documents has a more or less detailed description of each slave. Since slaves were property, surprisingly to many people, there's much more information about slaves than there is about free people in documents, in, in historical documents, of course. Uh, and so these documents will describe the slave just as if you were buying a house, you'd describe the house or a car. You'd put the put, describe the car and say what kind it is and the model number. In the case of slaves, it would describe the slave so that it could be clear who's who, who what this piece of property is. Um, yeah, let me jump in and give you a little bit of background as well to, to build on what Gwen was saying. Um, I'm a historian, so let, let me give you a little bit of the history of the project. Gwen um, has, of course. Um, a terrific, um, expansive database called the, Louis, uh, the Louisiana Slave Database, which she put together over many, many, many years. I of began in 1984. Many years and, of, of working. And, and I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, it was just something that happened because I ran into so much extraordinary uh, descriptions of slaves, including their African ethnic designations. In the state, and that which was, and these are. This was information that was not supposed to exist in the United, certainly in the United States, and it was so massive that I figured I could not operate with with note cards. So, so that so, database she put together by looking at a great variety of records, um, court records, criminal records, um, records from sales, um, uh, all sorts of records that she found um, yeah, yeah. down in Louisiana. Including extensive testimony by slaves in court cases, which so the, was also not supposed to exist. So the database itself has, what, about 100,000 um, entries in it? Yeah, including the free database. Some of them are actually Atlantic slave trade voyages with very little well, well, you know, kind of basic information about the slaves, which I think we're going to take out of there. But, so when you know. Gwen put the database together, she was interested in individual slaves. She was interested in what data she could find out about individuals, and she entered that into a, a, a spreadsheet that, that has various fields that give you inf um, different sorts of information. Um, that 
project led to the publication of a great number of articles, um, um, two extremely important books by her, and then um, others have used it as well. It is today free and available on the internet, but um, no slight against Gwen uses what today is somewhat dated technology. It's that, a little it bit dates from 2001, so I'm not a bit insulted. <laughs> In um, fact, it, it was, a, was also pioneering to get that kind of stuff on the internet that early. So <laughs> I knew about this project, and um, I think it was two years ago at a, an American Historical Association conference. I um, somebody introduced me to Gwen. Um, at, um, we were at a, a reception, and we both sat down and started talking. I myself was um, working at the time on a database that is much more uh, modest than Gwen's. It's about eight thousand individuals. Um, who I had found um, a lot of data about um, from down in Brazil, Maranhão, Brazil. Um, and we started talking about other folks who were, other scholars who were working on very similar sorts of project, that is putting together databases with um, information about slaves from all over the Atlantic. And we were both together bemoaning the fact that what typically happens to these databases um, is that people produce books, articles with them, they sit on hard drives, and then scholars retire, scholars move on to other projects, and those databases then just sit on a hard drive. Um, they're not available to the general public, they're not available to other scholars. And we decided, um, since we had both had very similar databases and knew of the existence of others, that it might be possible for us to work through our own connections and to try to convince other scholars to work with us in creating an Atlantic-wide database that would combine all of this information that has been collected and um, um, also look to other younger scholars who are currently con constructing databases and find a way to get all of that information together in one place so that it can be accessible, accessible to scholars, accessible to the public. Um, so at AHA, we committed to each other that we would write a, um, an application for, uh, um, to NEH for some funding to support this. Um, it just so happens that Matrix, um, the Digital Humanities Center, at, uh, uh, is right here at Michigan State University. So I told Gwen that I would, I would talk with folks at Matrix about um, the technology uh, that they might apply to this project. And, um, uh, to make a very long story short, Gwen flew out, gave a talk. We sat down with folks at Matrix, um, started working on an application, and Gwen called me later, a couple of months later, and said, "Hi, I've moved into East Lansing. I'm ready to <laughs> I'm ready to sew this project up." <laughs> <laughs> and of course, that shocked everybody because we hadn't gotten funded, you know. But I just assumed that we would. I I spent at least a decade trying to find the right place to work, because nowhere in in the in New or I was living in New Orleans, and of course Katrina messed things up a little bit, but aside from that, they really did not have the technology to back me up. And the, the, the nicest place was Tulane, who told me that they couldn't do it, you know, but a lot of other places will say, oh yeah, we can do it, and then of course they couldn't. And so it, when I, and I had actually contacted Dean Rayberger before, and uh, the, the, the conversation didn't get off the ground because there was no funding, and I was not there. I was in New Orleans. But this time we did sit down and talk, and uh, I was convinced that we could get this thing underway. So I just moved here. Now, for the listeners who are not familiar with CORA, that's spelled K-O-R-A, like the yeah. West African instrument. Mm -hmm. 
Um, if you go to the Matrix website, there is a description of Quora. You can just Google Matrix and Quora, and that'll lead you to a nice description. But basically, it's an open source, uh, database-driven, online digital repository application for all sorts of multimedia objects, for text, for images, for audio, for video. Uh, and it's been created by Matrix, and uh, you can learn more about it on the website. But that's um, a critical piece of the puzzle here in constructing uh, this mm -hmm. database and making it available uh, via the web. Now, there are probably many other technical aspects of this project that uh, are interesting to discuss. Are there some that you would like to share with, with the listeners, uh, both in terms of challenges and opportunities, maybe? Okay. Well, let, let me say first about challenges. This, challenges. this is not a bit easy to do because the databases are so complex and so many different types of documents are in them that it requires a great deal of thought and coordination. And I must say that uh, we have had wonderful support from, from Matrix. We have a project director, uh, Catherine Foley. And uh, I'm, I've been meeting with her about two hours a week, every week. And we are discussing how to handle the various fields of the database. We're getting feedback from people who are doing various type, working with various types of documents, or I should say, focusing on various types of documents. And one thing I'd like to say is that this is a major contribution to uh, spreading digital culture internationally, because there are many places in the world where people have absolutely no access to 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 uh, digital technology, but by just simply when we when we get when we after we launch this, which we expect to do at the American Historical Association meeting in in twenty thirteen in next January, um, then people, regardless of where they live. As long as they can get onto the internet, they can use the use it. They can communicate with us. We can blog. We can discuss issues. We might even be able to project some do difficult documents that we could discuss. You know, what does this mean? Uh, we are not aimed towards a great deal of of uh, uh, images at this point because we really have our hands full. But I would like just to say that we had some scholars here from Cuba, and they invited us to Cuba. We're going as a delegation. And uh, they are wildly enthused about getting this kind of support for their digital uh, ambitions, because they, they are doing really outstanding databases, but they can't get access to uh, the technology that they need to go forward with them. And so they are just thrilled with being able to get into an inter international project that's going to project digital humanities. And I'm sure this is true in, 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 Afri in Africa as well. So you talked about international collaboration. You mentioned mm -hmm. the Cubans. Um, uh, who else is participating in this project? Well, uh, Walter should talk about this most recent message from Brazil. Well, we have... Um, 
folks participate in this project from um, really all over the place. We, um, we have a number of scholars in Brazil. There was recently an article in um, uh, one of the leading um, journals, um, a journal put out by the uh, National Archive in uh, Brazil that focused on this project. Um, they interviewed both um, um, Gwen and me and um, wrote a nice little piece in, in the journal. And we've gotten a couple of inquiries following that, um, one from a scholar in um, Sao Paulo, Brazil, who is working on a database that involves criminal court records. Um, he would like to make that open to the public. He's put all this stuff together, working on his own book, but wants to make it available. So he's sending me today, I haven't checked my email, it might be there right now, but he's sending me today his data. Um, as Gwen said, we've got um, folks in um, Cuba who are interested in, in, in participating in the project. And then we have um, scholars from really all over North America who have gotten excited about this. Um, they're um, scholars in South Carolina, um, other scholars who are working on Louisiana. Um, and in addition, we've, we've talked with some um, scholars who have databases of slaves who were captured in Africa, but were not necessarily exported from Africa. And um, since we have really pictured this as an Atlantic-wide database, um, we're certainly interested in integrating that sort of data in here. So it really is, even at this early stage, an international project. Um, and our hope is that once we get this thing up and going and prove that it works, prove that you can make calculations from this and that it, it, runs, um, it runs very smoothly, um, and that the data is indeed free, open, available to the public, um, that more and more scholars will want to volunteer their data and it, it, will, it will continue to grow into the future. Uh, let me say one thing. One of the big aspects of this database is that it, it will be wonderful for genealogists. And there's a very strong, strong movement and a growing movement among African Americans to trace their roots and some of them have been able to find their African, the ethnicities of their African ancestors on my database. And so that has brought about some great enthusiasm. Uh, this, we also are working with Afrogeneus, which is a very old African genealogy, African-American genealogy website. And uh, we just had, we have telephone conferences with people. And this last one we had this week, which was ex very productive and very informative. So we're not, Im we are not imposing things from above. And we are not creating something that's rigid that we can't change. But because to me, the greatest challenge of history is to ask the right questions. And so we, all, we are flexible enough so that the database can be organized and structured in such a way that, any, that as many questions as possible can be, can be posed and answered. That's, I think, fabulous. And I like the interactivity that's planned for this database as well, yes. because that really takes it to a different level where the users are actually engaging the scholars and, mm -hmm. uh, and the sources. Mm -hmm. uh, well, instead, a lot of what I've seen on the web so far has been of kind of an old school format where the material is presented as completed. Right. And it's exactly. essentially <clears throat> sort of the, the, the print behind glass format with very right. little interaction on the, from right. the user no, standpoint. Nothing so is, this is completed exciting. with this. The structure can change. We can always add fields. 
And uh, that's a marvelous thing. Is it difficult to work with so many different languages? I mean, obviously, talking about the Atlantic world, there's, that's of course, right. the Lusophone world, exactly. there's the Anglophone, the Francophone, okay. and the Hispanophone. Well, we so cover some of it. Walter is, is quite fluent in Portuguese, and I'm quite fluent in French and Spanish, and I can read Portuguese. Uh, but uh, at least we, we are able, at least initially, to communicate with, mo mo with most people. The, the, there are a lot of important records in Dutch, at least not huge numbers, but the Dutch tend to be able to read English. Well, so. well this raises one of the many um, technical and intellectual challenges of putting together a database that spans um, the entire Atlantic. Um, one is just communicating with people in multiple languages, but the other is what the documents tell you. Now, the documents in Brazil, of course, are written in Portuguese. The documents in, up, up here in North America are in Spanish or English or French, and we can look over the rest of the Atlantic. And um, so one of, the, one of the, the challenges then is how do you, do you just put a database up in English and assume that everybody's going to just be able to read the English? Um, what do you do about translation? Um, um, we have a field in the database for skills, and obviously those skills are recorded in many different languages. Um, so what do ultimately does the database, information does the database kick out? Do we translate all of those skills into English and just kick out English? Um, or do we have multiple fields for multiple languages? Or does the, the database itself have some translation function? Um, similarly, we have African languages. Um, um, Africans themselves, in many of the documents we are looking at, identify themselves as being from a particular place or of a particular ethnicity, what we might call an ethnicity. Um, those ethnicities, of course, change over time. In English, they're written down as one thing. In Portuguese, they might be written down as something very different. Um, so then you get the challenge of what you do with an ethnicity if somebody identifies themselves in one document as a Yoruba and another document as a Nago and another document is something very that you might consider similar but maybe not quite the same. Right, Lukumi um, in Cuba. That's, right. that's really complex because that has a very broad meaning. So People certain decisions really need to be made about, first of all, how t this thing is going to function technically. Right. But then on the intellectual side, um, are these different words for an ethnic group? Do they point, well, do they point to an ethnic group or do they talk about something very different? Um, and that's the kind of decision one, one has to make. We're, we're grappling right now with an, uh, another issue of um, dividing the database up into, we, we can do a lot with ethnic or what we will call ethnic um, data that is in documents. Um, there's another issue of um, dividing Africa up into regions so that we can make broad claims about where slaves came from. Um, we can say something about the local, but we, do we want to divide the continent up into regions so we can say um, X number of slaves came from this region? Um, well, slaves do don't necessarily identify themselves as coming from a region, so we have right. to we have to then invent those regions. And furthermore, they move. And you know? furthermore, they move. Um, so they might be in one region one time period, and then more likely another region another time period. So what is, what's an example of a region you're inventing? <laughs> well, um, for example, slavers themselves, slave traders themselves, um, pointed to Africa and used different char uh, different characterizations. Um, some slave traders talked about Senegambia. Um, others talked about um, and, and divided the coast up into Senegambia and Sierra Leone, while others talked about Upper Guinea, which in some 
characterizations of the term includes all of Senegambia and all of Sierra Leone, and others it's sort of a smaller territory that that's, um, overlaps both. Um, so if you're going to divide a database up then into regions, you need to make the call right now. Mm -hmm. We're going to say there is a Senegambia and a Sierra Leone. These are invented terms. They didn't exist in the 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th century, but they were areas that slavers pointed to. Um, so, you know, that's a debate that we have to have and we have to have them right. with ourselves and then yeah. with other scholars who are experts right. in this region. Right. Another debate we have to have is about, about will names tell us eth ethnicities? And in other words, that there will be people. There will be people who will look at names and say, "Okay, this name is means that this person is is of a particular ethnicity." I think that African scholars really raise serious, uh, pertinent questions about how accurate that could possibly be. I think it's more widely accepted among so Western scholars. But this is something else we need to re discuss and resolve. But you know, the very fact that we have all of these collaborative discussions, and some of them, most of them, I'm afraid it's going to have to be through uh, Skype telephone conversations or through blogs, that it's a very positive thing. Because I'm finding that there are people who specialize in these topics, and they may be the only person in their on their campus or even uh, in their world mm -hmm. <laughs> who were interested in it, and they're so thrilled to be able to communicate with other scholars on a regular basis about Google questions that come up. Now, a, a, quite a famous and widely used database uh, has been the transatlantic slave trade database. Uh, David Eltis, uh, David Richardson, and, and others mm -hmm. have been involved in this for quite some time, and they have information on almost 35,000 slaving voyages. Uh, how does that database compare with what you're trying to do with um, slavebiographies.org and, and ASDN? The, that database, also an NEH-funded database, um, is housed at Emory University and really is the product of um, decades of work by a great number of scholars attempting to um, trace voyages of slave ships across the Atlantic. And as you um, said, it's right now a collection free, available on the internet of um, information of about, about some 35,000 um, slave voyages. Um, what that database is interested in and what that database does is it traces ships from one port, uh, a port in Africa to um, a port in the Americas. So they're interested in transatlantic crossings. Um, they, they very purposely do not then pick up on um, whether or not slaves are transshipped, put on other ships, and taken to other parts of the Americas. It's rather um, a shipment from an African port to an American port. Um, it is a, an unbelievable tool. I use it in my own research. I use it in class. Um, I've, um, I um, use it with both graduate students and undergraduate. It's an unbelievable tool for um, tracing slave voyages, for making determinations about how many slaves were on particular ships, for making broad conclusions about how many slaves came um, boarded ships in particular regions. Um, it, it's, and some of the technologies and some of the ways the website have, have been set up, we've been um, following quite closely. What we are doing that's 
different from that, and um, uh, I think in some ways um, will dovetail very nicely with that project, is the data that we have can tell you a great deal about, in many situations, about from where slaves came in the interior of Africa. Um, so what we have right now mostly is collections of documents that were documents created here in the Americas, although we will have and we do have some that were created in Africa. Um, and these documents in many situations are slaves saying an African name or saying I am from a particular place in the interior of Africa or I am from a particular mm -hmm. African ethnic group. Um, what you can then do with that data is to compile it all into this database and to run statistical analysis. So you can figure out then what percentage of slaves came from Mandinka territories, what percentage of slaves in the area of Africa I study were of Balanta descent or Papel descent or Biafada descent. Um, and you can begin then to make some conclusions about where they came, again, from within the continent. We know how many slaves got on at a particular port, but the Atlantic Slave Trade Database can't tell us anything about that interior slave trade, about where slave production is occurring. Now, something else about our database is we have lots of information about, um, on the American side, about where slaves ended up in the interior of the Americas. Um, so we know that lots of slaves are on this plantation, lots of slaves are on that plantation. We can tell you for, um, um, in uh, many situations, what the percentage of slaves in a major city, New Orleans, or on a large plantation um, in Louisiana, in Brazil, in Cuba, what percentage come from particular ethnic groups. Um, so what our data can then um, be used to do, um, I think, um, one of the many things, is to, is to trace slaves from particular parts of the interior of Africa to particular places in the Americas and make then these connections. Um, and I think it is important to know that, you know, maybe on one particular plantation or in one particular region of the Americas, most of the slaves came from this part of Africa. Um, in the case of my work, I can show you that most of the slaves who end up in Maranhão, Brazil, came from an area of Africa that was about the size of Connecticut. Um, they all lived very closely to one another. They all shared many of the same cultural assumptions. Now, if you look at other parts of the Americas, that's not necessarily the case. Um, but this, again, it leads, it, it allows us to answer many questions that are out there and then opens up the possibility of asking, I think, many, mm -hmm. many different sorts of questions than the Atlantic Slave Trade Database allows us to ask. Okay. I think the biggest contrast between the two databases and it, and is that the transatlantic slave trade deals only with voyages, of course. Uh, and there's very little information in that database about the individual slaves. And the questions were framed many years ago, and they have not, they, it's a bit rigid in the sense that they tend to keep the same questions. Uh, for our database, aside from the flexibility, which I've already talked about, the, we have detailed information about individual slaves, which is not in the transatlantic slave trade database. And so these are generally, most of our documents were created in the Americas for commercial purposes or judicial purposes. And it has a phenomenal, some of them have phenomenal amount of information about slaves' descriptions, their skills, their illnesses, their families, who they were related to, how many children they had, uh, a court testimony, which is quite fascinating. We also have a subgroup 
being organized that deals with runaway slaves. So that there are newspaper advertisements, for example, for runaway slaves, which are extremely descriptive because they're trying to, to uh, get people to look out for for these particular slaves. So that would include uh, scars or uh, uh, clothing, uh, skills, where they went, why they went there. Uh, then, then they off, off, usually offer rewards for, for capturing them. And in addition to that, there are jailhouse records about slaves. Like, for example, they'd be recaptured slaves, and they didn't know who the master was. Maybe the slave couldn't speak the language except African languages, which nobody understood there. So that they would then uh, make announcements describing the slave and telling the mass that anyone who wants to come claim the slave, that they better come by a certain date because otherwise they'd be sold for the uh, for what it costs them to keep them in jail. It's an incredible way to humanize yeah. uh, this, this human yes. tragedy on such a colossal scale. And, and right. I think sometimes when you deal with the slave trade, you're overwhelmed by the scale of it, and and mm -hmm. you lose sense that these were human beings. Right, uh, you go, and it's, go. It's and really, it's really fascinating to hear you talk right. about these databases and these sets of um, of uh, human beings, but telling their stories and yeah. trying to identify who they were and what they wore, and and yeah. you know, and and their suffering in a very um, sort of tangible way, if you will, and, and and it really brings out the the brutality of it even more. It, it's amazing. I've, I've looked over some uh, runaway slave advertisements from Mississippi, and these people are just so brutalized. They have all kinds of scars from beatings and lashings and cuttings, punishment, you know, uh, physical abuse. And at the same time, okay. they're not just passive victims, right? There are runaways. No, and yes, they are, of course. They are making choices within the right. limited constraints Which that they have. Which might be why they were beaten so often. <laughs> Because they were hard to control. This perhaps is a is a good way for um, us to try and bring the conversation uh, to a close. I was reminded, listening to you, of uh, a panel we had at the African Studies Association meeting uh, just a few months ago, and an article also written in the very prestigious uh, Journal of African History uh, by uh, a British-based scholar, Reed, who is basically arguing uh, as the as the panel did at ASA about what to do about the crisis in pre-colonial African history. Uh, is this kind of application of digital technologies to pre-colonial African history uh, and an and, and, uh, African history that's transnational, is this the way one can cope with this uh, alleged crisis? Uh, is this uh, a, a tool for survival or even uh, growth and development? Um, I, I think the answer to your question is yes. I was also at that panel. Um, and. It, it was an interesting panel because we had a room packed full of scholars all working on pre-colonial saying that no one is working on pre-colonial <laughs> history. Um, but that aside, um, one of the, the issues that was raised by many folks in the room was that pre-colonial African history, I think for undergraduate students, for the public, for folks we're really trying as scholars to reach out to, um, can at times seem a little bit dry. Um, and the reason for this, a little bit boring, um, the reason for this, I think, is because we 
don't have sources that speak really about individuals, about people. Um, we, we have sources that talk about big movements of groups. Um, we have sources that talk about um, states. We have sources that talk about what an ethnic group did. Um, but just the nature of the sources, we don't have many written records um, from produced in the interior of Africa during this period. Um, don't tell you about you know the suffering of, of common folk, folk you might be able to identify with, um, people you might be able to point to and say, oh, look at how this person is negotiation, negotiating particular power structures in a society. Um, and what this database will do, I think, is to, as Gwen has pointed out um, in this um, conversation, is to provide real tangible information about individuals, their names, who they were married to, um, what scars they had, what skills they brought with them for Africa, or what skills they developed in the Americas. Um, it will allow us to make big sweeping conclusions about groups of people, and certainly that is what databases do, but you can pull that down to the level of the individual. And um, it's gonna be free, available on the internet. Um, it is our hope that, um, that high school students will use this, that college students will use this, that um, folks interested in their own past will use this to do genealogical work. Um, but I do think it will um, address some of these concerns that um, many scholars have about making the work that we do relevant, um, making the work that we do accessible to the public, and, um, and, and making it exciting, making it something that, that, that folks really want to read and want to study. All right, well, thank you very much for sharing your, your insights and letting us know about this wonderful project that's building. It's uh, the Atlantic Slave Database Network, and if you want to look at a thicker description uh, of the project, go to slavebiographies.org. And uh, thank you very much, Gwen and Walter. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. Africa Past and Present is produced by Matrix, the Center for Humane Arts, Letters, and Social Sciences Online at Michigan State University. Our producer is Scott Pennington. Technical assistance is provided by Alicia Scheel and the Matrix staff. For more information about this and other episodes, and to subscribe to the podcast, you can visit our website at afripod, that's A-F-R-I-P-O-D, dot A-O-D-L dot O-R-G. Africa Past and Present is also available on iTunes and other podcatcher sites. To get in touch with us, send us email at africa.podcast at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>